here. Welcome, Neil. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime, because this is hell and the great crime we will be discussing today is one of the worst kinds of crime as it potentially threatens the physical well-being of all of us and future generations. You may not know what polyfluoroalkyl substances are. Hell, you may have trouble pronouncing it like I do. You might have to have a pronunciation key in your script in order for you to pronounce polyfluoroalkyl. But you probably have heard of PFAS, P-F-A-S, the acronym the toxic substance goes by. It's found in, as our guest today reports, things like carpets, clothing, cookware, cosmetics, dental floss, oh, that's scary, fast food wrappers, uh, firefighting foam, food packaging, microwave popcorn, uh, bags, uh, paper plates, pizza boxes, rain jackets, and anything rain-resistant, as well as in ski wax. So I'm glad I don't ski. It also can be found in sludge from sewage treatment plants, the kind of sludge that's been used in community gardens and farms across the state of Illinois. The kind of sludge that can be found in the grounds of Chicago's family and kid-oriented Maggie Daly Park and next to the Emmett Till Museum, also here in Chicago. It's seemingly everywhere. Again, as our guest explains, it was pioneered after World War II by the global conglomerates 3M and DuPont. These synthetic chemicals have been added for decades to products featuring brand names such as Scotchgard, Stainmaster, and Teflon. But it's also found in our drinking water and in our food. As we will learn today, quote, scientists are finding that tiny concentrations can trigger testicular and kidney cancer, birth defects, liver damage, impaired fertility immune system disorders, high cholesterol, and obesity. Links to other diseases are suspected in part because the chemicals disrupt albumin, a protein that carries hormones and vitamins throughout the body the, or the blood system. And it's not going anywhere soon because it's, it, it doesn't break down, giving it the frightening title of being a forever chemical. In a few minutes, we will speak with Michael Hawthorne, the lead author of the five-part Chicago Tribune investigation into PFAS and their impact on Chicago and across the United States and well around the world. Michael is a Pulitzer finalist investigative reporter who focuses on the environment and public health for the Chicago Tribune. You can follow Michael on Twitter at ScribeGuy. ScribeGuy. I'm your bitter blind broke Gaptooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, do you have any plans for the holidays whatsoever? Yeah, we're going to go down to CU. That's Champaign-Urbana to the uninitiated. Ah, the Champana area. On the 26th, a little iconoclastic. We're going to go down on the 26th, even though, you know, Chris, Christians celebrate it on the 25th. But you're celebrating on the 26th, or are you yeah. waiting until the 27th for the actual celebration? No, we're going to celebrate on the 26th. We're going to have a nice family dinner. And are you just going to come right back home? That's right exactly back right. We're going to a zip car, like true Midwesterners, going to drive eight hours in a day for like a four-hour gathering. 
It's going to be excellent. Awesome. You go by my one of my favorite time, towns in Chicago, Effingham. I'm so, yeah, so, T-Town, they call it. Yeah, Got I'm, that giant cross. Yeah, I'm so glad that they changed their name from what it originally was, and they yeah. clean, cleaned it up a little bit to call it Effingham. Exactly. I thought, that was very clever on their part. Forward thinking. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, my plan for the holidays is first attending the uh, final This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think, which happens this evening. At the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Then Sunday, December 18th, I'll be back here because I still have some gift shopping to do. And downstairs in the, mar- in the bar, as well as upstairs, right outside the doors of these here Second Story Studios, the Carrie's Holiday Pop-Up Shop returns for the first time since the pandemic began. And I learned last night that they've only done one of these before, and it was back in 2017. So I'm looking forward to going to this one. The Pop-Up Shop features two whole floors of handmade and unique gifts by over a dozen neighborhood artisans. So support the artists of the Rogers Park, West Ridge neighborhood area, and uh, come over here for the uh, Carrie's Holiday Pop-Up Shop. The shop opens at 1 p.m. and runs until 7 p.m. this Sunday. I'm in a couple of uh, family secret Santa gift exchanges, and uh, you know, prior to COVID-19, I would always find a low-cost, unique gift for whoever I was giving a gift at the one of the holiday pop-up shops, which was, I got a really great gift, and everybody was trading it right away, so you can find some stuff here on Sunday. Then next Wednesday, December 21st, on the Winter Solstice, I'm back here at Carrie's Lounge yet again, as we will have the return of the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Everyone who drops by will get a special gift from your friends here at This Is Hell. And if you have still not finished your holiday gift shopping, we will have all of our This Is Hell swag available. And what says Happy Holidays more than something with the words This Is Hell on it, whether it's the This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, face mask, coffee mug, trucker's caps, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can see everything that will be available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's lengthy, lengthy question from hell? This week's question from hell is precisely this. What tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas slash holiday stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news and i want to thank everybody who responded with very lengthy answers because i thought that was very uh, pomo very pomo of yeah it's appropriate it is the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want thanks to zachary n of wilkinsburg pennsylvania who picked up a this is hell winter hat over the last few days thanks zachary you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at This Is Hell Radio at gmail.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of today's show following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff rebuts a right wing equivalence theory. Earlier this week, we mentioned how we will be playing the best of 2022 starting Monday, December 19th and running through the first week of 2023. We asked you all to send us your favorite episodes of This Is Hell or your favorite guests. We also want to know what were your favorite moments of truth and past inside the present segments. Essel S even suggested one of my monologues on Patreon as their favorite of 2022, and we will be 
rescuing that monologue from behind the paywall and sharing it with you over the holidays. Like everything here on This Is Hell, like the annual listener appreciation party, like the holiday office party, like office hours, like the fact that we ask for your guest and, top, guest and topic suggestions throughout the year, and thank you on air if we do have your suggested guest or topic on the show. This is all about you when we want you to program the next three weeks of shows. Riley J. sent their favorite shows of 2022. Riley writes, happy end of 2022. I listened to all of the episodes from this year so far, so maybe that gives my picks a bit more weight. Well, la-di-da, Riley. Here's my favorite episodes. Psychedelic inequality, great topic, really interesting guest. Sounded like you could have used some psychedelics on that episode too, Chuck. Hope that happened. The stripper in the coal mine. I'm a labor activist struggling against reactionary forces that hold power in my union. So this spoke to me. And Riley, you're not the first person to suggest that show, so listen for it over the holidays. Riley also suggests anything with Cerise Castle. She's so cool, and all this is how listeners should listen to A Tradition of Violence, Cerise's podcast on gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Also, I listened to her most recent appearance at the Bristol Renaissance Fair, if I remember correctly. Episodes, he also suggests episodes where I get name-checked for driving to office hours all the way from Milwaukee and bringing a book of Ghanaian movie posters. Don't remember which episodes these were or if they were even main feed, but what an honor. Hope to come down for the holiday office party, unless I catch something from the worst end of year list, 2022's top viruses. Thanks, Riley. It was great meeting you this past summer. We hope to see you at the holiday office party, which is happening again on the first day of winter, the winter solstice, Wednesday, December 21st. But wait a second. So you were listening to Cerise Castle talk about deputy gangs in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department while you were attending the Bristol Renaissance Fair? Are you certain you were not hallucinating being at a Renaissance Fair, listening to a report on police gangs while on psychedelics? Are you absolutely certain you were actually at a Renaissance Fair while listening to that interview? I'm going to be asking you that again at the holiday office party if you drop by. Send us your favorite interview guests and topics or, you know, segments by Jeff Dorton in The Moment of Truths, Dr. Sebastian Vupper and The Past Inside the Present. And who knows, maybe we will, we will be playing your favorite interview during our upcoming Best of 2022 shows, which will be airing throughout the holidays. Coming up, Michael Hawthorne will talk PFAS in Illinois drinking water and seemingly everywhere else. We will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. And Jeff Dorchin will be sharing a moment of truth. Live from the United States where we know the price of everything but refuse to recognize the cost of anything. This is how we seem to be inundated with a chemical substance called PFAS that is already in our water, our food, and our bloodstream, and has been linked to a variety of diseases. Yet federal agencies like the EPA and local state EPAs have done little about addressing them and what can be done now that they are already in our environment and in ourselves. Here to help us figure out 
what why PFAS are in us and what can be done about it now, or if it's just already too late. Investigative reporter Michael Hawthorne is the lead author of the Chicago Tribune investigation into PFAS. He is a Pulitzer finalist investigative reporter who focuses on the environment and public health for the Chicago Tribune. You can follow Michael on Twitter at ScribeGuy. Welcome to This Is Hell, Michael. Great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, because this is something that yeah, I heard people talking about this back in like the like around 2015 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a town that's very concerned about environmentalism. But PFAS had seemingly gone under their radar. And then when it then when they found out about it, the, the reaction seemed to be, well, there, it's too late. There's just nothing that can be done about this. Did PFAS kind of sneak up on all the environmentalists and activists who are concerned about their drinking water? Was this kind of a surprise to everybody? Well, it goes back even even longer than that, Chuck. Um, I first started writing about these chemicals in the early 2000s. And um, I was working on a different story. I was working in Ohio at the time. I was in the middle of a pasture with a, a geologist. We were testing soil near a giant coal-fired power plant. Um, and and we're you know I'm kneeling down in this pasture and the the, the geologist says you think this is a story uh, I've got a story for you and she started describing these chemicals and it turns out that uh, a few miles upstream on the Ohio River from where we were at um, the Dupont company uh, chemical company um, that's where they make Teflon which uh, you know was in cookware and carpets, all kinds of, uh, of stain, stick-resistant um, products, and um, a chemical that they used during production was one of these forever chemicals, PFOA. And nobody at the US EPA or uh, any of the state EPAs, this is in the early 2000s, again, it's not that long ago, um, they didn't know about these chemicals uh, because the 3M Corporation in Minnesota and DuPont had failed to tell the EPA that these chemicals were dangerous, that they were almost indestructible and at least not naturally, uh, uh, they can't be destroyed, and uh, that they were in the blood of people all around the world. 3M knew this in the 1970s. Uh, as early as the very late 1950s and early 1960s, 3M and DuPont knew that these chemicals were toxic. This predated, you know, the creation of the EPA in 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 uh, 1970. But even after that, uh, the companies withheld documents. They later paid fines um, for withholding those documents. There was a law passed in in 1976 by Congress that was the, the first attempt to really get um, some kind of handle on our chemical age. Before that, you know, these companies, oh, you know, that was the Wild West, essentially. Um, and so, you know, here we are today. Um, I had written about this again, you know, in the early 2000s. I've gone on to other things um, you know, I kind of run up and down the periodic table um, <laughs> with with you know different things that can harm us: lead, flame retardants with bromine, 
Um, uh, and, and I came back to this story again uh, within the last couple of years. And I was frankly, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to sound jaded or cynical. I, I'm not, I'm not either of those, but I was astounded by how little had changed since I had written about these chemicals uh, several years earlier. And, uh, you know, what we know now, you, you mentioned at the top of the show and, and, and right before you introduced me, is that we're finding these chemicals everywhere. Um, state after state, community after community, if they look for these chemicals, they're going to find them. And the liability now for companies like 3M and DuPont is pretty staggering. I've got another story in this series coming up, and I, 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 um, I looked at 3M's in, um, reports to investors that are required by the Securities and Exchange Commission. In 2003, the 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 section on these PFAS forever chemicals was five paragraphs long. In the most recent quarterly report, 3M sent to its investors that section is 15 pages long. They've got trouble, not just in the United States, but in Europe. And uh, last year in Belgium, they have another facility that makes these chemicals. The Belgian authorities actually shut 3M's plant down. And um, until they promised to start cleaning up contaminated sites near their plant outside Antwerp and um, making sure that there was clean water for people who live nearby. So um, do, go do, ahead. Do you think that 3M and DuPont then might face a kind of, oh, well, first of all, I just got to say, all of a sudden I just envisioned you with a huge periodic table up on your office wall <laughs> and a big red marker and you're just going through each chemical as you do a report. But could be, uh, 3M and DuPont, because you were talking about how they knew about this back in the 60s. They, they've they known about the problems with this. You mentioned the new report that you, or new article you're going to be having out about 3M and how it's a bigger part of their investors' newsletter that they or their prospectus that they have to give out to investors every year. So do you think that 3M and DuPont might be facing their own big tobacco moment could that what be what might be facing the chemistry industry right now uh potentially potentially uh th dupont um dupont interestingly that they they have um done some corporate restructuring as they call it um they created a different company it's called Keymores, and they saddled that company with all of their liabilities um the DuPont Corporation as it existed when they were making these chemicals no longer exists. So there are these levels of, of, of uh, corporate, um, like a firewall, essentially. Um, but um, they're still being sued. Uh, Keymores is being sued. They, uh, 3M, it's important to note that the, the, the two... Um, the two, uh, the most studied versions of these chemicals, the one's called PFOS and the other's PFOA, which I mentioned. PFOA was in Teflon and PFOS was in Scotchgard, which is a similar, you know, stain resistant, rain resistant uh, chemical that 3M had pioneered. 3M made both of these chemicals. 
they sold PFOA exclusively to DuPont. Uh, and in 2000, they came out and they had a press conference and they said, hey, we're, we're phasing these chemicals out because we've learned that they build up in people's blood and that they're very persistent, meaning they don't break down in the environment. Um, they claimed at the time, and they still do, that the chemicals aren't harmful at levels found in people. But they had, just a little bit before this public announcement, had shared a bunch of these formerly secret studies that they had done with the EPA, where, for example, in the late 70s, they had um, had to stop one study because every monkey in the lab that was fed the Scotchgard chemical died. Um, they knew that it was in the blood of their workers. Um, at DuPont, at their plant in Parkersburg, West Virginia, they knew that, uh, number one, that uh, women who worked in the PFOA production area had given birth, some, some of them had given birth to babies with birth defects that uh, were very similar to what the company had found when it tested rats. So again, they knew this and, uh, you know, DuPont paid a large legal settlement uh, back in, I guess it was late 2000s. And uh, part of that deal was they, uh, agreed that people could not sue them until there was a study done of of health effects in the in the in the area near their plant in West Virginia, and sixty nine thousand people signed up for this study. That's a pretty staggering number. You don't usually see that in a in a, any kind of health effects study, and uh, uh, scientists that were agreed to by DuPont and the plaintiffs in that case, um, they looked at people's, you know, what was in people's blood. And then they came up with some of these diseases that you mentioned at the top of the show, testicular cancer, um, thyroid uh, problems, um, low birth weight, but also obesity later in life. So, it, it, you know, it's, it, in a lot of ways, they these chemicals act like hormones, and they scramble our bodies at different points in life and cause problems. So um, after that happened, with the with the what they called the C eight health study, C eight because PFOA had eight carbon atoms attached to uh, fluorine atoms, making these indestructible bonds that were so great for things like Teflon, but not great for our bodies. Um, then people started suing DuPont and they, DuPont was able to choose the lawsuits that it wanted to litigate first. And they lost two in a row really badly. Like, I think the first one was like a million five verdict. And, uh, the other, the next one was pretty similar. And then they settled all these other cases. And, uh, around the same time, 3M was being sued by the state of Minnesota its home state. 3M was originally the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, and it grew into a, you know, a global conglomerate in part by making these forever chemicals. And uh, 
Minnesota, the then Attorney General Lori Swanson, you know, went against the uh, the sacred cow, you know, mantra that often happens in in communities. Went after the big homestay company, and in 2018, won a settlement with 3M for 850 million, providing to provide clean water around the Minneapolis-St. Paul area where a big PFAS production plant is where they first synthesized these chemicals after World War II. So, and there's and there's more, you know, there's a giant, um, what they call multi-district litigation. So it's all these different lawsuits against 3M um, for firefighting foam that they made with one of these chemicals, the, the, the Scotchgard chemical PFOS. Those are turning up all over the place because airports were required, airports of a certain size were required to have these chemicals on hand, the firefighting foam on hand, I mean, and fire departments. And so, you know, if there was a fire somewhere or uh, firefighters are training somewhere and they used some of this PFOS, PFOS firefighting foam, the stuff doesn't go away. It's a forever chemical, right? So it's it's going to stick around and it's going to eventually find its way in drinking water. And uh, that's, you know, we don't know right now in Illinois exactly where these chemicals are coming from. That's another thing that industry in general has avoided for a long time. That's maybe going to change soon. But, uh, you know, you've got these communities in rural areas of Illinois seemingly you know, no industry nearby, what would be, you know, what would be the source of these chemicals in their drinking water? Well, it could have been the firefighting foam. Or uh, from another scary perspective, it could be air pollution. Uh, Just last month, 3M's got another production plant north of the Quad Cities in Illinois, Cordova, Illinois. It's about 15 miles north of the Quad Cities. And the US EPA stepped in after years of inaction and they required 3M to do a bunch of testing around their property. But also interesting to me in that order from November of 2022, they have to provide, 3M has to provide clean water to a community, Comanche, Iowa, which is actually upstream from the 3M plant. So that means that air pollution, not water pollution, air pollution polluted the wells of Comanche, Iowa. Um, and so, yeah, we're, you know, there, there are ways to get these chemicals out of our water. Um, when you stop production of these chemicals, they begin, uh, the levels of them in the environment begin to decrease. So there's a way out of this. Um, it just, isn't happening probably as fast as it should. So if we want to fight fires, if we want to have non-stick pans, if we want to have stain-free furniture, do we have to have PFOS, PFOA, all these different uh, forever chemicals? Is there an alternative or is the choice, well, you're going to have <laughs> your eggs sticking to your pans from now on because well, there is no alternative to Teflon? Well, so the companies initially said, "Hey, we, you know, we're getting rid of this uh, this really bad chemistry, right? We're gonna we're gonna get rid of you know." 3M said, "We're gonna we're gonna stop making PFOA and PFOS 
you know, the original Scotchgard and Teflon chemicals. Uh, DuPont was a bit recalcitrant. It just said, screw you, 3M. We're going to start making PFOA on our own. But they eventually agreed to phase that out. And by mid, I think 2015 was the date where all U.S. manufacturing of those two chemicals stopped. But the, the companies then said, hey, we've got these alternatives and they're safer. They're not so persistent. Um, that was their big calling card. Their own studies, though, showed that their, the replacement chemicals for the original Scotchgard and Teflon chemicals are just as dangerous, if not more so. They may not be super persistent, meaning they, they break down eventually more easily than the original chemicals did, but they still cause harm. And, and they're persistent in a different way because we're constantly being exposed to them in house dust and drinking water and our food, as you mentioned at the top of the show. Um, so we've got a problem with the, with these replacement chemicals as well. And that's something we've seen time and time again from the chemical industry. They, they tweak a couple of molecules, say the, the new chemical is perfectly safe. And then under our present system of chemical regulation in the United States, it's up to independent scientists to catch up to what the company knew. Oftentimes the, the, the chemical formulas are trade secrets and um, the EPA even today typically allows new chemicals on the market with very little, if any study of their health effects. It's, it's up to the companies to provide those studies. And oftentimes they don't unless they're forced to. And that doesn't happen very often. It's starting to happen now with some of these uh, replacement forever chemicals. But, you know, the, the old proverbial, the, the, the barn door has been left open and the horses are gone. Um, there are alternatives. There, are, there is uh, PFAS-free cookware out there, often with, uh, with, you have to look for PFAS-free. Sometimes you'll see something that'll say PFOA-free or PTFE-free. PTFE is, is the chemical abbreviation for what Teflon is. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're free of PFAS, meaning all of the PFAS, meaning all of the forever chemicals. So they're out there. And um, there are companies now, I know that, that different outdoor companies, um, Marmot, even now Patagonia, are, are um, selling products that say they're PFC free. PFC is another acronym for these forever chemicals. Um, so that's, that's, that's encouraging. You still have a problem though with fast food wrappers. You know, the first, the first reports about these chemicals and fast food wrappers came out more than a decade ago. And just recently, once again, there was some testing of, of, of food packaging, uh, you know, McDonald's wrappers, Chick-fil-A, whatever else like this. And they found, you know, different forever chemicals in, in, in food wrappers still today. And now, once again, you're 10 years later, you've got all the fast food companies. Hey, by 2025, we're going to be PFAS free. You know, once again, like, where were you before? Um, essentially, though, the chemical companies told them that, hey, we've got these safe replacements and, you know, trust us. It's amazing. 
So how effective can consumer choice be in protecting yourself against all these forever chemicals getting into your bloodstream, getting into your children's bloodstream, getting into your food, getting into your water? Can we, because often we've had guests on the show point out that consumer choice is not the best way to approach these kinds of things. Individual choice is not the best way to make certain that we have clean water and food that is not contaminated. So how effective can consumer choice at this point B, in fighting against getting these chemicals in our uh, blood system, it would, it would labeling stuff PFAS-free be a huge step toward making it so consumer choice might be effective? I think, you know, I think it, it's, it, it can send signals, right? If, if enough people are clamoring for this, we've seen this with, with other toxic chemicals. Uh, you're right. What, what people in my reporting experience, uh, it's, 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 you know, it's pretty difficult to 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 put the burden on just everyday people. Um, you know, some people are going to hear this podcast, you know, show. Some people are going to read my stories, but a lot of people aren't. And 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 so you know, as as a scientist once once put it to me, these these particular chemicals, these forever chemicals, are the inconvenient consequence of a convenient lifestyle. And um, if you can still have uh, products that provide some level of performance that we've, you know, come to uh, expect, you know, well, so be it then, right? Um, there, there's a there's a group called the Green Science Policy Institute. Um, their website they have they have suggestions for um, how you can avoid PFAS on your own. Uh, also, Consumer Reports, you know, the very respected nonprofit, they've they've been looking at this quite a bit. They have suggestions for how individuals can avoid um, PFAS in their daily lives. But it's tough. You know, you don't want to be the boy in the plastic bubble, right? And it's pretty impossible um, to do that. So really, the the the, the impetus should be on regulators and corporations um, to do the right thing. But these corporations, as you know, and as you were stating earlier, can be incredibly powerful, especially in Minnesota. 3M can be very politically powerful, can, uh, you know, have lobbyists, can fund people's campaigns. And, you know, there'd be a very good argument. I, you know, you always hear this argument, I should say, uh, when it comes to anything that's good for the environment, it's often packaged as being bad for workers. So what was the impact on 3M? What was the impact on DuPont once they were paying these fines, once they were being sued for PFAS? Is that is is regulating PFAS a threat to people's livelihoods? Uh, They're still doing pretty well. (laughs) <laughs> Both companies, you know, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, their investor reports, uh, hey, you know, hey, we're setting aside X million for, uh, you know, expected litigation or whatnot. Uh, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to, you know, the, 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 the annual profits of these companies. So uh, and they're and, you know, they're big um, companies that, you know, they're conglomerates. They have different they, they make different things as well. Right. So they're, they're insulated in that sense. Um, and, but once again, you know, the, the, you know, authorities in, in Europe are, are, are taking a close look at this. They, at least on paper, have a much stronger chemical safety system, uh, than we do in the United States. 
Um, you know, I, I wrote in my series uh, that, you know, we've had presidents going back to George W. Bush. So Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know, have have said they're going to do something about this and they haven't uh, other than, you know, kick the can down the road. Uh, the Biden administration has outlined uh, a pretty, you know, I mean, I would say it's a pretty aggressive agenda to actually start tackling these chemicals uh, by the end of the year. They're saying that they will propose the first legally enforceable limits on at least some of these chemicals in drinking water. That could be a big deal, and it'll be fought tooth and nail by the chemical companies. Um, and there are many steps along the way in the regulatory process where chemical companies can successfully, you know, essentially gum up the works. Um, but there's clear there's authority under the Clean Water Act to do this. Um, they're also talking about requiring more testing. They've already required some additional testing or more rigorous testing of some of the replacement chemicals that have been introduced to the market with little, if any, oversight. Um, they're talking about uh, perhaps regulating these chemicals in sewage sludge that's given away to farmers and gardeners and spread on gardens and on farm fields and potentially one of the ways that these chemicals get into our food. Um, so, you know, and they're talking also about using their authority under the federal Superfund law to declare some of these chemicals as hazardous substances, which then would make it easier to require cleanups at contaminated sites around the country. So that if those things go forward in the next couple of years, that, that could start, you know, turning the screw a different way and 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 um, getting some of these chemicals out of our lives uh, in the in the really detrimental way that they are today you um, you've written but, but the proof's in the pudding right right uh you've written uh, about a whole bunch of different environmental issues not just this uh, when you were talking about uh you know how 3m and dupont are doing just fine they and it seems like they factored this into the cost of doing business these kind of fines so is there, how effective do you think these fines are when it comes to getting major corporations, conglomerates, as you were calling them, to clean up the environment, to change the way that, and what they put into the environment? Do we need to hold these corporations, these conglomerates, and the people who run these corporations and conglomerates, do we need to hold them criminally responsible if we really need to see change? How effective are fines? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, criminal, uh, you know, criminal sanctions on in environmental cases are pretty rare. Uh, I think the last one I can think of was a a, a a a manufacturing facility in suburban Buffalo, New York, um, Tanawanda Coke. They made uh, Coke for steel making, and the executives of the company had hidden. Uh, reports about how much they had contaminated the environment around their plant and uh, the pollution they were emitting into the air. That's still pretty rare. I mean, that, and that's several years ago now. Um, yeah, they're, they're, even though the authority, there's authority to do that on the books, they, they typically don't. Um, you know, under Illinois law, um, there was a case in, in suburban, West Suburban Willowbrook just a couple of years ago where Governor Pritzker uh, shut down a uh, a facility that was emitting 
uh, a highly toxic gas called ethylene oxide. Um, but that authority, while in law, is very rarely invoked. Um, and it's, you know, the 3M company with its plant north of the Quad Cities, the state could have used that authority there too, much like the authorities did in Belgium. But um, what I've found is that time and time again, state regulators in Illinois deferred to 3M. And even though they knew that the company was discharging astronomical concentrations of these chemicals into the Mississippi River, which by the way, is the source of drinking water for 20 million Americans, um, even though state officials and even federal officials knew this, they didn't take any action until this year when the attorney general of Illinois, Kwame Raoul, sued 3M, and uh, and then the U.S. EPA stepped in and said, "Hey, you know, you're going to have to provide some clean water. You're going to have to do more rigorous testing." And and that's the beginning of what could be another uh, Parkersburg, West Virginia, Cottage Grove, Minnesota, Antwerp, Belgium situation, uh, where you know people might hit, get be getting their blood drawn and analyzed for these chemicals uh, you know that's something that 3m wants to try to avoid right um it's interesting that they now just just within the last couple of months with this 3m plant north of the quad cities they're just now installing more effective water treatment to knock these pfas chemicals out of their wastewater discharge into the mississippi uh, it's something that they've that's how they got to restart their plant in Belgium. And it's something that they did in Minnesota, their home state in the mid 2000s. So, and that was because state officials started looking and asking questions. If you don't do that, uh, nothing's gonna happen. So the Environmental Protection Agency, as you were pointing out earlier, starts in 1970. And, you know, their uh, mission is to make certain that we do have clean air, we do have clean water. But since 1970, we've seen the advent of globalization, and a big part of globalization has been increasing trade secrets and intellectual property rights in the bigger picture. Is that the most, is how big of an obstacle are trade secrets and intellectual property rights for us to clean up our environment? Well, it's, it's, it's really difficult. I, this is the case with, uh, with uh, flame retardants that uh, I wrote about several years ago. Um, Once again, there were, there were, you know, bad flame retardants out there. They were building up in people's bodies. They were showing up in the breast milk of, you know, of mothers all around the world. Um, babies were being born with the chemicals in their bodies. And the chemical companies said, hey, guess what? We've got a brand new substitute and it's perfectly safe. But you can't know what the formula is. And uh, here we go. Just take our word for it. And then it's up to uh, individual scientists to act like detectives and figure it out. And that's what happened with some of these replacement flame retardants. And that's essentially what's been happening with these replacement forever chemicals as well. There was a scientist at North Carolina State University who was the first uh, individual researcher, whatever, to test water downstream from DuPont's, then DuPont's uh, Teflon plant in, in 
Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he found, you know, off the charts numbers of a bunch of these replacement forever chemicals in drinking water or in, and in, and in the river. Um, and that was, you know, several years after 3M had stopped making the chemicals and DuPont started making them at this Fayetteville facility and then, you know, using alternative versions of the chemistry and, you know, it was, everything was just hunky-dory according to the EPA and, and, uh, and the company. Um, once again, it took individuals, it took individual scientists, independent, you know, independent academic scientists to figure out that there was still a big problem. And, um, so the, yeah, confidentiality and trade secrets, that's a problem for, you know, independent researchers to get at these things. Eventually they can be pried back a bit, um, but it takes time. And, you know, it's, it's like the, it's like the old carnival game, whack-a-mole, right? You knock one down and another one pops up. Um, that's essentially what we're living through since, you know, the chemical age began after really after World War II. We are speaking with Michael Hawthorne. He is an investigative reporter and the lead author of the five-part Chicago Tribune investigation into PFAS. You can follow Michael on Twitter at ScribeGuy. So you point out in your article how it's really difficult to trace back exactly who is putting these PFAS into the water. If we don't necessarily know where exactly they are coming from, which facilities they are coming, coming from, how do we know it's from 3M and DuPont? And if we do know it's from 3M and DuPont, why can't we just ask them who they've sold PFAS to and then just trace it that way? I know you're laughing because that sounds way too simplistic. No, I just, just I, it, I asked the same question. That's why I'm laughing. It's um, um, the lawyers would say, the lawyers who have sued the companies would say, uh, we know because only a handful of companies in the United States make these chemicals or even in the world. I mean, there might be companies in China that we don't know about that are making even the original forever chemicals today, but at least in the U S you know, for the sake of this discussion, we'll say, you know, there are only maybe five companies that made these chemicals. The vast majority of the production was from 3M and DuPont. So that's where they came from. Um, under a rule change that Congress actually required several years ago, but the Trump administration screwed up in the implementation deliberately. Um, there's a law called the Community Right to Know Act. It was passed by Congress in the 80s after there was a huge chemical disaster in Bhopal, India, that killed a lot of people, thousands of people. And the idea behind the community right to know law is that, hey, you should at least know if that if that company or that plant down the street from you, you should at least know what they're discharging into the environment, emitting into the air, dumping into the sewers, whatnot. The, you know, the bare minimum, right? Um, companies that make or use these forever chemicals have not been required to report that in the toxics release inventory, which is an annual report that says, you know, what's coming out of, um, you know, the power plant, you know, on the outskirts of town. Um, when, you know, the first time that they were technically required to do this, the, the, the Trump administration screwed the implementation of the rule 
so much that even 3M didn't report anything <laughs> to the TRI, to the Toxics Release Inventory. Um, that's going to change under rules that would just been introduced by the Biden administration. So conceivably within the next year or two, we're going to start learning, you know, who's using these chemicals and where. And and then, you know, that the idea that Congress had back in the 80s was like, hey, at least if you're armed with that information, you can start pestering your elected officials, you can start pestering, you know, corporate officials, you know, cut it out, right? Stop doing this. Um, and it, it, it's been somewhat of a success, you know, knowledge is power, right? It, it, it is. And, and, and um, you know, it's led to a lot of different changes just here in the Chicago area. I can think of a handful, you know, coal-fired power plant shutting down, uh, a big lead-emitting smelter cleaning up its act, um, you know, companies stopping their discharges into the Chicago River or into Lake Michigan. Um, it can have an effect. So once again, it's been, you know, delayed far too long. Um, but it does seem like something, some positive change could could be on the horizon. So is this about inept government or is this about the power of corporations or is it like every binary question we ask, it's both a public-private partnership and in this case, poison, <laughs> poisoning us? It's both. It's both. Um, you know, th there has to be political will. Uh, it, 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 it's of interest to me that... Um, this is a not right now, at least, and it has been for several years. This is a bipartisan issue. Um, the Trump administration tried to appoint an apologist for the chemical industry to be the top chemical regulator at the EPA. That person had to withdraw his nomination because senators, both Republican and Democrat, oppose the nomination because of these forever chemicals. So, you know, that worked, right? The knowledge and the, and the, and the, and the public uh, anger over being contaminated with these chemicals actually had an effect, right? In this sense. Um, but, you know, the Trump administration still approved a heck of a lot of PFAS chemicals during its four years. And we don't know a lot about them. Still, um, part of it, it's the law being not, part of it's the law. And also part of it is not enough money for the people at the EPA to do their job. Right. I mean, the you you'll you recall the, the Trump administration had gutted the EPA in terms of its personnel. But that had been happening for years earlier. They, the workforce dropped significantly under Obama, too. Um Lisa Jackson, who was Obama's first EPA administrator, she had she talked a big game back in 2008 about doing something about these chemicals, and really didn't do anything. Um, you know, Gina McCarthy, who replaced her and then later went on to to lead the Natural Resources Defense Council, you know, one of the top nonprofit environmental groups in the country who cares a lot about these chemicals. Uh, you know, she spent most of her time in with good measure, you know, working on climate change, because it is, you know, the biggest existential threat that we face. Um, 
but once again, you know, the can was kicked down the road in terms of actually coming to grips with some of these chemicals that are affecting us right now. And um, it, 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 it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, uh, there's a British term that I love. It's, it's, I, I'm gobsmacked by it um, because it doesn't have to be this way. And you point out that uh, you write up that, that dozens of uh, Illinois communities are stuck with contaminated water for now, including the Criswell Court Trailer Park. The future of the development is tied up in court proceedings after the longtime owner died six years ago, said manager Wendy William or Wendy Miller, who uh, brushed aside uh, questions about the uh, safe, safety of the well water. You then quote Miller saying, from what I'm told, these chemicals are everywhere. What can we do about it? Michael, what leads to a belief that nothing can be done about it? Well, I mean, that's uh, to me that's uh, that's a that's a typical deflection from from anybody being, you know, asked a question that might paint them in a you know the answer might paint them in a negative light. Um, you know, it's it's true they're everywhere, but again, you know, there's you can you can you can filter your water. Uh, you know, 3M is paying for water treatment in certain areas, you know, near its, near the, uh, near the uh, chemical plant north of the Quad Cities, they are required to offer water treatment, in-home water treatment uh, that can knock these chemicals out uh, within a certain radius from the plant. That, the number of, of people who are in that predicament could increase as testing is, expanded um you know in 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 um places like uh, ohio and and uh west virginia and uh, minnesota you know water treatment has helped you know you, you you get it out of the water column and 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 people are drinking safer water if you regulate these chemicals and have legally enforceable standards then the water treatment plants have to start doing something to uh, protect us. Right now they can technically say that our water is perfectly safe to drink. That just means that they're following the rules that are on the books presently, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't address these otherwise unregulated chemicals. If, if and when that changes, that could be pretty significant for public health. Um, but you know, knowledge is power once again, and and uh, you know one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series is um, the state did this statewide testing of water systems, and then they buried the results and downplayed what they found. Uh, and you've got two of these chemicals now. The you know the the original Scotchgard and and, and Teflon chemicals, they're so dangerous that the the U.S. EPA this year back in June said there's effectively no safe level of exposure. So over a lifetime of drinking water with pretty much any water with these chemicals in, you know, even like the tiniest concentration of these chemicals um, could trigger health problems later in life. Um, we don't need that. We, we need it out of our water. And, um, you know, again, at least telling people that this is happening, um, not allowing officials to downplay it or, you know, sweep it under the rug or, you know, buried on, on some 
government website where they say, oh, you know, like uh, uh, this is like the equivalent of a drop of water in 20 or 2000 swimming pools. Well, okay, yeah, that's great, but it's so toxic that, that it's effectively unsafe at any level, right? So we're talking in parts per quadrillion, not parts per billion, quadrillion. That's almost, there's nothing else that we measure presently that's dangerous at a parts per quadrillion level. So that's another sign telling us that we need to take this seriously and do something about it as soon as possible. You were mentioning the role that sewage treatment plants play in having getting these PFAS being in our drinking water, but also being in a sludge that they have uh, given to, in, including community farms here in Chicago, as a free type of manure. They've also done it out in uh, outstate Illinois, you know, in uh, the more hinterland area of Illinois, when in the farmlands where they've given this free manure to people that is just filled with this toxic sludge. Uh, here in Chicago, our uh, sewage treatment facility is run by the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District. So should the elected commissioners of the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, should they be held accountable? Would electing new commissioners make any difference? To what extent can democracy save us from forever chemicals? Well, we do have at least one commissioner uh, at the MWRD uh, uh, who is taking this seriously. And... um, you know, it happens to be the former Great Lakes czar for um, under the Obama administration, Cam Davis, who was elected just a few years ago to the MWRD board. And he was also the former uh, head of the Lake Michigan Federation, uh, now known as the Alliance for the Great Lakes. So, you know, it comes from that environmental NGO background. Um, and he's been asking questions about this and, 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 uh, after my, after one of my stories, which was on the the giveaway of this um, PFAS laden sludge to gardeners, um, the MWRD board or the president Carrie Steele announced that they were going to put a pause on the distribution of this sludge to individual gardeners. And conveniently, that was right after, you know, it's, it's around the same time as the growing season, you know, being over, right? It's the harvest. Um, you know, I, I interviewed a, a, a woman uh, who has a community garden in Evanston uh, that, that is operated by the city or overseen by the city. And, um, you know, they started using this MWRD sludge. They called it biosolids, not sludge, by the way. They they came up, they had a contest for that. And that's several years ago, they decided sludge wasn't a good name. And so instead they're going to call it biosolids. Uh, one of the other options was human manure, by the way, human manure, right? Great. Ha ha, funny. Um, but once again, because these chemicals aren't regulated, uh, MWRD, other sewage districts around the country are not required to tell anybody about these chemicals being in their sludge. Uh, it, it took um, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests from me to pry confidential memos uh, out showing what and when the Water Reclamation District here in the Chicago area that handles all the sewage for Cook County and Chicago, 
um, that they've known about this for a long time, that their own land that they've they've tested, they 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 they've known this. They were involved in some of the earliest studies, um, and early being you know in the like a decade ago. Um, again, because the chemicals aren't regulated, they just decided not to do anything about it. And and they they you know in fairness they have a predicament you know sludge is a is a is a byproduct of of treating all of our waste right human and industrial waste and you got to put it somewhere and uh when congress passed laws in the 1970s improving the safety of landfills the cost of disposal went up significantly you know a lot of of sewage districts on the coast dumped their sludge in the ocean. Well, that's not a good idea either. Um, so that was prohibited. Uh, so they've 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 uh, considered you know the what they call the land application of biosolids to be you know a, a great service, free fertilizer to farmers. You know, but they haven't told the farmers that oh by the way. <laughs> You know this stuff is contaminated, um, and, and you know it's got other stuff in it too, like pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, but you know the state of Maine, uh, which is which studied this issue significantly earlier this year, the governor signed bipartisan legislation banning the land application of sewage sludge because of these forever chemicals. The state of Michigan requires testing and also uh, prohibits. The, the spreading of sludge on farmland if the levels the forever levels of forever chemicals in sludge is at a certain level and that's successfully reduced concentrations in what's being spread on farms but you've got you know you've got farmers who've lost their livelihoods who can't sell their animals um because you know their meat or their milk is got really high levels of these chemicals in their bodies and the farmers themselves um, have these chemicals. So um, in part, because we just haven't been looking, uh, we don't know what the scope of this problem is, but what we do know now, what my reporting showed is that only the Los Angeles area gives away more of this sludge than Chicago, than Chicago's MWRD. And we've got farmland all over the outskirts of suburban Chicago, even within the suburbs, um, there's still some farmland that, you know, these, this sludge has been spread on that land for years. And um, it hasn't been tested. But when it ha when certain fields have been tested, the levels that were found several years ago were significantly higher than what has been found more recently. So that suggests, because these chemicals don't break down naturally, that there are some fields out there in suburban Chicago or on the outskirts of suburbia that are more contaminated than others. Here in Illinois, agriculture is a major part of the economy. So this could be devastating to the agricultural sector here in Illinois if uh, people all of a sudden don't want to 
eat food that's grown in Illinois. This could be something that's really bad for the bottom line of the state. You write that household dust. You, you mentioned how you were mentioning earlier how you can uh, use water filters to hopefully have PFAS not be in your water. You write household dust is another source of exposure. Use HEPA filters when vacuuming. Dust with wet cloths and mops and wash hands frequently, especially before eating. So should PFAS be treated the way we responded to COVID-19 prior to vaccines being available, and that is as a constant public health risk? Yes. Yes. Based on based on what the people way smarter than me have told me and and uh, what I've read and what my reporting has, sh- has shown, uh, yes. Um, you know, in general, I mean, you know, I learned during the, the, uh, the series on flame retardants that one of our major one of the major sources of exposure to these chemicals in daily life is dryer lint of all things. You know, it, it, it concentrates in the dryer lint, you know, we pull out the, you know, the, the, the lint trap and, and we've got those chemicals on our fingers. And, and so the scientists that first figured this out was like, Hey, you've got to always wash your hands after you, you know, take the dryer lint out of your dryer. It's, you know, Kind of absurd, isn't it? It's very it's abs- true. It's very absurd, and I have to go home and do laundry, and <laughs> I'm going to be doing it in a completely different way. Michael, yeah. one last question for you. We've been speaking with Michael Th- Hawthorne, and it has been an, a real pleasure having you on the show. He's the lead author of the five-part tr- Chicago Tribune investigation into PFAS. You can follow Michael on Twitter, at ScribeGuyMichael. What we do with all of our guests is our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write staff uh, at the Department of Asset. That's Information and Services, an agency that now oversees many of the city's environmental groups, told an organization called Grounds for Peace that sludge spreading has been banned on city property since at least 2006. The prohibition does not include land owned by the Chicago Park District, which has fertilized parks with sludge and used tons of it during construction of Maggie Daly Park downtown, Steelworkers Park in South Chicago, and the 606 Trail on the near northwest side. So, Michael... Would you take your kids to Maggie Daly Park? Yeah, I think so, because, uh, you know, the risk of exposure there is going to be minimal, I think. I think, Um, you know, make sure they wash their hands at the end at the end of the day. You want to do that anyway. Right. But um, I haven't you know, it's funny. My kids are all older. So I I, I, I've lived in the city for, you know. 20 plus years and I <laughs> still haven't been to Maggie Daly Park, but, but, um, neither have I, it, it looks pretty nice though. Yeah, um, sure. I think it's, it looks like a fun place to go for a kid. I, I mean, I take my dog to Steelworkers Park all the time. Um, and you know, I'm more, uh, I guess I'm more afraid of the goo, all the goose droppings, you know, that, that dot the, the, uh, the lawn or the, the grass there in the field at Steelworkers Park. But, um yeah i i you know you, you can't you can't uh seize up and and stop your daily life so um you know take some of those precautions that um i mentioned in the in the in the series that i've mentioned you know here on your show uh you know you can't you know it's like it's like an old uh, former colleague of mine said yeah it must really suck being you <laughs> right hey you know because uh, you know i'm i'm the i'm the i'm the i'm the killjoy who you know 
shows up in Southern California and says, what the hell are all those oil derricks doing out in the ocean, right? So um, Debbie Downer, maybe, right, is what some of my friends like to like to call me. But, you know, I'm, I'm generally pretty optimistic. And, and, and I think, you know, knowledge is power, as I've said several times, uh, you know, in this segment. And, and, you know, change can happen. It doesn't happen necessarily overnight. And, uh, you know, I, t- I once told my daughter, uh, who was really active in, in social issues uh, when she was in college, I said, you know, sometimes there's redemption in the struggle. And uh, so I think we just have to keep the pressure on, keep the foot on the, you know, on the gas, demand change. And, uh, you know, it seems to be moving in the right direction. I get much of the same uh, criticism, but that's what you expect when you're doing a show called This Is Hell. So, (laughs) Michael, I really appreciate you being on, and we'll definitely want to have you back on to do some more follow-ups on this, as well as other writing that you're doing on the environment. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Pleasure being with you. Thanks so much, Chuck. All right. Take care, Michael. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell, if what you just heard from Michael on toxins in our food, water, and being spread on farms seemingly everywhere. If that was in some way making you certain that this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. I know we have a few answers left on Twitter and maybe some new ones on Facebook. That's right. This week's question from hell is what tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas slash holiday stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news. Over at Facebook, Kim G says, being of a certain age in the final month of this year of the Karen, it could be anything, but probably something regarding electric bikes on the sidewalk and an air horn. (laughs) <laughs> Over at Twitter, Ahmad S. says, when someone ironically points at me and goes, here goes another year for capitalism. <laughs> I guess that would bother me. Yeah, too. that would probably be really annoying. Yeah. Historic historic dog walk says oh I've been training and conducting unsanctioned ethnographic research for decades to answer this question and a bit of bourbon (laughs) dot 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 rock taster answers question my sobriety and finally Paul Nicegood says my dog just ate the chicken kebabs off the kitchen counter does that count? (laughs) (laughs) gotta take care of your dog what kind of home are you running over there (laughs) the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell again wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want you can still leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page you can tweet it at us or you can email thisishellradio at gmail.com we'll have the rest of your answers following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth so you still have a chance at winning whatever piece of merchandise of uh, this is hell you want keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt please subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams every thursday and his podcast shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell this week on the show we spoke with leslie kern about her book gentrification is inevitable 
and other lies that led me to think about my own experiences with uh, gentrification and how I live have lived in Chicago and how I've always lived in a very diverse neighborhood, neighborhoods which I was eventually priced out of, forcing me to live in more available neighborhoods. But I'm not rich, and as we are all told by rich people, that's my fault because at some point along the line, I must have made horrible decisions that led to my lack of wealth. I mean, there's no way it would be because I experience ableism on a daily basis or that my partner is confronted with sexism and misogyny or that my non-white neighbors have been have ever been affected by racism. I, I always end up reading, uh, or residing in areas that are dominated by immigrants. In fact, where I live now is the most racially, ethnically, and economically diverse census tract in the United States. And we always seem to end up living in the most diverse census tract in the United States. That is until they are no longer the most diverse area, which prices us out. So this week on Patreon, it's gentrification versus me. And you're going to want to uh, be a subscriber to our Patreon podcast because over the holidays, one of the things I'll be talking about is everything that we have learned here on This Is Hell in the last year. We'll do a recap of the entire year, so you want to tune in to that. Be, or, uh, subscribe to our Patreon podcast so you can find out everything that we did learn. We are also playing, I'm not too sure which one yet, but a classic interview that are from our archive that is not currently available anywhere else online. But as, as of right now, we're uncertain which one. However, we will be announcing which classic interview we will be playing later today on social media, so look out for that. But uh, the only way you can hear any of that, again, is by be a subscriber here on, you know, patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff, the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner live from Hangover Country. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Good grief and bad grief, Charlie Brown. Last Friday, December 9th, 2022, in Detroit, in the midst of a performance by Cyrus Chestnut and the Detroit Symphony Orchestra of selections from the Vince Guaraldi score of the cartoon Christmas special, A Charlie Brown Christmas, someone shouted a slur that either was the N-word or included the N-word. None of the news outlets are saying. The orchestra maintained their focus. Audience members interviewed afterwards expressed disgust with whoever shouted the slur. WXYZ Channel 70 News in <clears throat> WXYZ Channel 7 News in Detroit reported the story, as did the newspaper, whatever newspaper means these days, the Detroit News. Cyrus Chestnut is black, as are some members of the DSO, as are people who were in the audience that night. Charlie Brown is a fictional figure, uh, but despite his surname, he's white. In the Lieber and Stoller song, Charlie Brown, written for, the, for and recorded by the Coasters, all members of which were black, Charlie Brown was probably black, but the N-word slur slinger most likely targeted the players rather than the subject of the music. Vince Guaraldi, the composer, was white, although his mustache was black. Nevertheless, it seems clear that the slur was aimed at the black instrumentalists on Friday. 
I should add that I'm only assuming it was the N-word based on the way all the news outlets have skirted around what exactly was shouted. It was definitely an anti-black term of derogation, but it could have been the COO word or the SP word. Those possibilities seem doubtful, especially the latter, given the reported reaction of the audience. But it's odd, no one's reporting that it was the N-word. As a euphemism, it's the most easily communicated via the press. Maybe there's an unwritten AP-style rule whereby an outlet is supposed to give the N-word the least amount of publicity possible, even in its euphemistic form. The article in the Detroit News has a comment section. If you can imagine, the comment section is inhabited by a grotesque menagerie of primates throwing feces. There are comments denying that the occurrence ever took place, despite the vast number of witnesses and the fact that the orchestra announced on its Facebook page its sadness in regards to the incidents. The DSO is deeply disappointed by an incident that took place towards the end of Friday night's concert when an audience member shouted a racial slur. Racism and bigotry have no place in orchestral hall, and behavior like this is unacceptable. We are currently investigating and will enact a permanent ban once we identify the ticket holder. Live music is a profoundly human experience that taps into our emotions and provides us all with a sacred space for listening. We apologize that this space was violated. We appreciate our audiences so much and hope to see you back at Orchestra Hall soon. Still, the naysayers said nay, accused the Detroit News of ginning up racially, a racially divisive story and asserted it was a leftist strategy to draw attention away from all the black-on-black -black violence in the city. I have a theory about all that right-wing concern for the black community and how often black people hurt each other. My belief is that there's a contest going on in the racist imagination between white violence and black violence. The right wants black violence to be seen as proportionally worse than violence by white people. Further, they want leftist violence, which they tellingly lump in with black violence, to be recognized as worse, more erratic, and more incidentally numerous. There is a widespread right-wing stance that the BLM protests of 2020 and the January 6th white supremacist assault on the election and the Capitol should be compared and that the BLM protests should be considered the more destructive. Right-wingers whine that not enough black and like-minded non-black protesters were prosecuted, injured, or killed for protesting. Further, they tend not to detect a pattern of red-pilled mass murders when tallying up the kills by right-wing gunmen, but seem able to detect Antifa everywhere a gun goes off or a building burns. They always bring up Steve Scalise, the one verifiably anti-Republican shooting, which didn't end in any fatalities except for the shooter himself, 66-year-old Thomas Hodgkinson. Their oddly lopsided tally of left-wing violence, to which they add incidents in their imagination similar to the Bowling Green Massacre and the adrenochrome-drinking Democratic 
vampire cabal becomes all the more cockeyed when they fob off all right-wing rifle-rabid mass shooter incidents as false flag operations perpetrated by the secret government, which is, of course, kept alive by consuming child adrenochrome. It is impossible to have a rational discussion about the subject with a Republican, especially one who leans toward the Trumpian end of the spectrum. I have tried. If you point out that the BLM protests were provoked by police killings of black men and women in situations where killing was not an appropriate option, they will defend the police. Some will tell you that black Americans invite police violence because of their behavior due to a culture of distrust and disrespect for authority. They basically force the police to kill them. And then when they succeed, they get angry at the police who are only doing what the black people forced them to do. It's a catch-22 for cops. Not only are they violent, black people are irrational and unfair. What makes them loot and burn buildings in their own neighborhoods? Irrationality. Slavery ended over 150 years ago. They live in America, the greatest country in the world, except for all the gay, pedophile, communist Jews controlling everything. To show they aren't racist, right-wingers will pivot to blaming white liberals for perpetuating black poverty and stoking black resentment. It's really the left's fault. The black population in the USA are really just the poorly raised children of liberals. This twisted analysis penetrates deep into the resentment of the white male supremacist who believes that liberals are feminizing the men of our society, making them helpless whiners, deferential to the desires of women and minorities, but who suppress their own, who only want to hand out and are jealous of the real heroes like Donald and Elon. Not only that, but according to careful historical analysis by Fox News entertainers, the left itself is stoking the ammo-drunk right-wing backlash. Even though, according to them, right-wing violence isn't actually happening, during the moments when it's rhetorically convenient to acknowledge that it is, it's all the left's fault. Another day in Weimar, squeaks a Fox News smarm excreter, which is their way of saying, the left is provoking the right to be violent against the left once again. The right-wing male Christian supremacist reaction is comparable to one of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's mythical five stages of grief, the stage of anger. They're stuck in the anger stage. What are the reactionaries grieving? Something that never existed, a world wherein they could busy themselves throughout the day without ever being reminded that there were concerns and needs different from their own. A time when nothing stood in the way of their expression, no social considerations blocked the striving for the satisfaction of their wholesome desires. They resent being reminded that the world isn't made up only of them, living as they want to live in their parochial ways, and they mourn the time when those reminders didn't exist. It's not a good grief. It's a bad grief, because it is based on the loss of something they never had. They grieve the loss of an imaginary condition, a singularly pure state, a peculiar institution, if you will. Thus, we found ourselves last Friday night, last Friday evening, being assaulted by a resentful racist who went to the symphony expecting to enjoy some blue-eyed jazz from one of his beloved childhood holiday cartoons, only to lay eyes on a stage filled with players led by a musician of color. 
Of course, my interpretation could be entirely wrong from beginning to end. Whatever happened, though, it's a symptom, and not a symptom of anything good. This has been the Moment of Truth. Happy holidays! That was a fantastic read, uh, but during it, was there somebody knocking at your door? <laughs> There's somebody hammering. Oh, okay. It's better yeah. than somebody knocking at your door. Uh, you know I hate Charlie Brown, right? I didn't know that. Is it yeah. because he's brown? No, it's because his <laughs> because name he's is not brown. It's because his name is Charlie, and as a kid, oh, everybody shit. called me Charlie, yeah. and so I just figured Charlie Brown was an you know like a, a representation of me. I even had a shirt with a zigzag you know, pattern across the front that he always wears. (laughs) And so everybody would call me Charlie. And finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I told her, I was like, I don't know, four or five. I told everybody, I walked into the living room. I was like, from now on, my name is Chuck. It's not Charlie. From now on, you better call me Chuck. And then what does Peppermint Patty do? (laughs) She starts calling him Chuck. Uh, Yep. And that pissed me off. Well, you know, she, uh, She's got a right to. She's got a big beef with the, uh, with male genitalia. Yeah. So what are you? <laughs> that's a that's a big beef too. So what are you doing for In your case? <laughs> so what are you doing for uh, the holiday season? Well, I will be dog sitting in Encino. Sweet. Uh, hot tubbing and jumping into the cold plunge, and uh, being really lonely and writing and hoping to get a job. Yeah, but that, that, also, that also sounds very uh, relaxing. It will be relaxing. There's nothing. Well, there's also there's also a group of people coming, kind of swooping in on uh, on December twenty second and twenty third on their way to New Zealand. So they're they're like stopping over from Detroit. They're coming in and they're staying at the house where I'm staying, which will disturb me and the dog (laughs) and will force me to don clothing when I don't want them donned. Uh, So do you know these people? Yeah, I know. Okay. I I know them, but they're, they're also, they're not, they're not committing to an arrival time either. So like the, the whole time I think they're coming, you know, which could be a long, you know, could could be a, like even the day before. All my clothes will have to be on my body. And I hate that. Yeah, but the anticipation of people arriving, that's what makes it exciting. That's what makes it disgusting. <laughs> I was thinking of, of ha- having a bon me, make your own bon me party there. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Uh, you know, I don't really know how to make them, but... Uh, oh, you'll find out. It's a good, it's a good excuse and to if eat you, a lot of bread. And if you screw up, just say it's a bow. Oh uh, boy, that would really be a screw up. <laughs> it would be. All right, Jeffy. Until yeah, next. Well, what are you doing? Uh, well, I am the normal four Christmases crap and uh you know going everywhere all over the state of michigan i'll be going to uh, mount pleasant and then uh, which is a where central michigan university is and there's nothing pleasant about mount pleasant their their catchphrase right now i'm not kidding you their tourism agency Mm -hmm. their catchphrase is wow mount pleasant (laughs) 
Maybe they should change it to Mount Iffy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think you're supposed to say it in a different way, but the way I, I read it was, wow, <laughs> wow. Mount Pleasant. And uh, then I'll be in Ann Arbor for a bit, and I think we're going to go visit uh, family in Monroe, which is like near Toledo, Ohio, all family that uh, works in a nuclear power plant. Ooh, neat. So that's going to be great. How about glugging? No, no, no glug this year uh, due to my girlfriend's work situation and how all of a sudden she is working 70 hours a week. (gasps) And because of uh, my health situation and everything that we've been going through with that, yeah, no glugging until next year. Really looking forward to it next year. Finally having Folky Sev's amazing glug again next year, hopefully. All right, Jeffy, until next year. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Oh, man. That's going to be some job. (laughs) Work on that, will you? (laughs) Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience, and do we have any new responses? Sure. This week's question from hell was, what tiny, normally inconsequential thing that somebody does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas or holiday stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news? We do have one last response on Facebook from SLS who responds, failing to win the question from hell. <laughs> They're going to go ballistic, Chuck, if you don't select them. That's, that's a, a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure there. The answers I liked the most were, I did like Kim G's response, being of a certain age in the final month of the year of the Karen. It could be anything, but probably something regarding electric bikes on the sidewalk and an air horn. If it was scooters, yes. Kim, you would have won for the second week in a row, but unfortunately you said electric bikes, and you won last week, so I'm not going to let you win again. Uh, Mark A. saying, anyone who hangs the mistletoe over the door upside down resulting in bad luck kisses instead of good luck kisses. John saying, uh, John T. saying, brick and mortar businesses that do not accept cash, even for purchases less than $5. Also, QR codes instead of human readable menus. Kibby N. saying, my my housemate whistling all over the house. My response is so hysterical. I'm worried it'll become historical. There were great lengthy responses from Blake E.K., uh, from Mark A.S. I think it was Rock Taster said, question my sobriety. I think that's correct. I like that answer as well. And Historic Dog Walk saying, oh, I've been training and conducting unsanctioned ethnographic research for decades to answer this question. It's me. It's me in the situation. And a bit of bourbon. That means our winner for this week's question from hell. Dan, should we go with one of the lengthy ones? Was there any there that you really liked? Yeah, do one of those flash fiction ones. Oh, the one with the uh, about going to Michigan? It's like the long ones. I like I like Justin Mason's custodian one. That's pretty long. That's a pretty good one, too. That was a really good one. All right, so let's give it to Justin. That's Justin a good one. Justin gets it. Boom. Yeah, let Justin, here is Justin's response and the winner of this week's question from hell. I'm a custodian at a community college, and every day I have to pick up wads of paper off of the floor right next to the trash can in every bathroom and extract full cups of coffee and bagel remnants from the recycling bins. I was once a student here myself, and I understand that between school work, a web of rapidly growing financial entanglements, attempting to decode the subtle social cues of potential romantic interests, and the knowledge that every day I will be a less attractive human with less time on a planet with fewer chances of being habitable for my uh, hypothetical offspring, it can be difficult to pay attention to precisely 
when my ref where my refuse ends up. That being said, the next wealthy oligarch that posts their ironic pronouns on social media is going to get a close-up photo of my whole anus in response. Uh, this assumes then that Justin's anus is worthy of national news, and now I want to see his whole anus, not just part of his anus. I want to see his whole anus because apparently Justin believes it's worthy of national news coverage. So congratulations, Justin. Uh, we uh, just send us your mailing address and we will be con- uh, will and tell us what kind of what piece of this is how merchandise you want and we will get that to you as soon as we possibly can. My answer to this week's question from hell, what tiny normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas holiday stress-powered camel's back making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news? Well, any mention of the need to increase interest rates in order to avoid the recession, a recession that never happened. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell and all the questions from hell over the last year. We are going to have new questions from hell during our shows where we are going to be playing the best of 2022. Uh, It just came across the wires. There's no more wires. I'm just saying that. It sounds newsy. And we just came across the wires that an Arctic blast is coming. And that sounds like fun. A blast is always fun, right? So join us in having a blast tonight during the final This Is Hell office hours of 2022. Maybe we'll bump into each other at the Carrie's Lounge pop-up holiday shop this Sunday. And I'm looking forward to celebrating the holidays with all of you next Wednesday, December 1st, on the winter solstice during the return of the This Is Hell holiday office party, which is back for the first time since 2019. Thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Vupper, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. And to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History and every week in Rotten History this year. Thanks to all of you for everything you've done for the show in the last year. And to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston for all of their work as well. Thanks to all of you for listening during what has been a very difficult year for me and the show. I truly, truly appreciate you tuning in and really appreciate those of you who are picking up This Is Hell merchandise or are going uh, to subscribe to our Patreon podcast or already subscribing to our Patreon podcast. And thanks to everybody who has joined us during This Is Hell office hours and all of our events throughout the year. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be talking about gentrification versus me. And uh, we'll be sharing a classic interview from our archives that is not available anywhere else online at this moment. On uh, December 22nd, we uh, will be talking about uh, what we learned here on This Is Hell in 2022 on Patreon. And on the 29th, it's my annual predictions for the following year, my predictions for 2023. I never go back to see if any of those predictions come true because I think the, the way I write them every year is in a way that they can't not become true. Eh, it's an easy out. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on the show this year, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>